You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. I want to continue now talking about God and then move on to some culminating considerations in this introduction to the thought of Thomas Aquinas. I realize we're covering a great deal of territory and touching on many points in a kind of glancing way, but it's meant to be introductory. And of course, other courses in the International Catholic University push beyond, in particular ways, points that are merely summarily spoken of here. It may seem to us, let's say as Christians, it might seem a little much for us to be saying, as I am, that even when God talks to us about himself, we're caught up in this difficulty of a use of language, terms that, whose natural habitat is some use other than to talk about God, using those to talk about God. And we have to ask, well, what is the relationship? How do we compare these different uses? How can such terms be common to God and creature? And we might think, well, wait, I rather rapidly cited Thomas as saying that things really aren't any different when it comes to Revelation. I mean, there are more things that God tells us about himself in Revelation, but the way in which he does it involves this question of analogy and how terms could be common to God and creature and so forth. When the theologian talks about the trinity of persons in God, he has to ask, what does three mean? as said of the persons. What does one mean as said of the nature, which is shared by three divine persons, present in three divine persons? This is the way the issues are always stated. How are these terms, meanings of which are available to us, how can they be applied to God? In the case of the incarnation, of course, where we say, well, God became man to dwell among us so that we'd be one like us, so we can look at him, listen to him, and so forth. Well, one of the things I suggested was if we listen to him, we're going to find that the way he teaches obeys the same kind of necessity that we have to be given images and stories of sensible basis in order to go beyond. But of course, if just seeing Christ were sufficient to know that he's the Son of God, faith wouldn't be necessary. Many men heard Christ and didn't believe. Many didn't have eyes to see or ears to hear. Obviously, something more is required than simply the physical presence of Christ in order to understand him to be what he is. When Thomas the Apostle, in that episode I alluded to, when he's not there, when the resurrected Christ comes to visit the apostles, he says he'd only believe it if he can put his hands in the side and in the marks of the nails and so forth. And when Christ comes, he invites him to do that. And well, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Christ says, what? Blessed are those who have believed and who have not seen. Now, what did Thomas see? He saw the wound, the wound in the side. He saw the wound of the nails. But did he see the Son of Man? Yes and no. What he sees through faith accepts as his Lord and his God. So there's always this puzzle or paradox with respect to the palpable and the physical in terms of Christianity, in terms of the incarnation. Kierkegaard in Philosophical Fragments goes on and on about this, that the very becoming man on the part of the second person of the Trinity brings him closer to us, and in another way it creates a distance 
between us because we have to say, this particular man, we saw him grow up, he, isn't he a carpenter? And so This is the Messiah? I mean, in many ways, the closeness creates a distance. Kierkegaard goes on about that. So I'm saying this now, lest you think that there's something irreverent uh, or insufficiently grateful with respect to Revelation here. I think Thomas is right in saying if we look at it, we're seeing that God in his mercy reveals himself to us in a mode that is appropriate to our limited capacity to understand. And that's going to mean it always has to be proportioned to a mind that requires sensible images in order to get going. Okay. Now, the plurality of the divine attributes, the very fact that there are many of them, wise, just, good, intelligent, and the like, it indicates their inadequacy to express fully what God is. I mean, if one of them did, we wouldn't need the other. The very plurality of them suggests, it seems to me, that they're not really able to express to us what God is as wise, what God is as just, and so forth. Because, as we're going to see, there is a sense in which these things cannot be separate in God. They're all unified in God. And that raises a question that Thomas is concerned with on several occasions when the plurality of the divine attributes that comes up. These are many terms, wise, just, good, intelligent, but they all name the same thing, God, in whom there is none of the complexity that in creatures calls for causality, for being caused. So God is said to be simple in that sense. He is not the effect of anything. So the divine simplicity requires that we don't have just a pileup of attributes in the divine nature. And ultimately, we're going to want to say, well, God is justice. God is wisdom. God is goodness. Then the question arises, are these synonyms? Huh? They all refer to the same being, God. Do they mean the same thing? Well, of course, if referring was what one meant by meaning, I suppose you'd have to say, yeah, they all mean the same thing. And in some sense, we'd all say that. We're all talking, we're using these terms to talk about the same thing. But Thomas is going to say, yeah, but don't think they're synonyms. Huh? Don't think they're synonyms. Why? For two reasons. We give a different account of wise than we do of just, and of just than we do of good, and so on. They get different meaning. And this is the second point Thomas wants to make. That reminds us of the fact that we have derived these meanings from creaturely perfection. And it's because of that, and because these perfections are really different in us, that these terms are not synonyms. So again, we're reminded, when this problem comes up, we're reminded of the fact that we are pushing, in a very laborious, as it might seem, way, out of what is most commensurate with our understanding, with the things that we understand easily, and we're trying to get some intimation of the divine. Now, if it is the case, as I'm saying again and again, that the names of God are analogous names, names, the positive attributes, are said of God analogously, we know that that means that they're shared names, that they're shared by God and creature, and then the question is, 
What is the ordered set of meanings that those terms have? The controlling meaning, again, is always going to be what we know of created wisdom, of created justice, and the like, and then we will extrapolate. So they're, they're all shared names. They're common names, common to God and creature, and we have to ask, in what does the community consist? How do we compare the meaning? Is there any way in which we could talk of a proper name of God? Is there any way in which we could, say, get beyond this dependence on our knowledge and talk of creatures and get at what God is and only he is, some name that would apply only to him. Well, Thomas is struck by a passage in Exodus when Moses is being given the law by God, and he says, who should I tell him is telling me all these things? And God says to Moses, tell them that he who is has said these things to you. He who is. And Thomas returns to the self-description of God any number of times and suggests that it is the most perfect name of God. And it seems to, though we'll see it doesn't quite, it seems to escape the restrictions that we've been putting on the divine attributes up to this time. It seems if God, who, who else could say, I am who am, or he who is, is my name. This would seem then to be a proper name of God. It's not one that is shared by creatures. So Thomas will reflect on this, as I say, any number of times. Whenever he talks about the divine name, this will be sort of the culminating consideration. Is ipsum esse subsistens, which is his translation, so to speak, of he who is, subsistent existence, is that the proper name for God? And Thomas is going to argue it's the least improper name of God. It is as close as we can get to saying this is God's name. Now, nothing I say is meant to in any way diminish the reverence and the awe that we should feel when we undertake this task of talking about God. We should never lose the sense of the distance between ourselves and God in terms of dignity close as he is to us in many ways, we wouldn't be if his causality didn't sustain us in existence. If I sound sometimes to be a little chatty about this and talk about God's quasi-proper name, please always understand that this is meant in a reverent and not in a chatty way. The he who is answer that God gives to Moses as to who his informant is with respect to the law is the name that, as I say, Thomas will seize upon and speak of as God's quasi-proper name, the least improper name of God. And there is no discussion in Thomas that I'm aware of in which he talks about the divine names where this doesn't take pride of place. It's usually the culminating thing. After talking about the difficulties of the plurality of divine attributes, they're not synonyms and so forth, he turns to this as, well, God has given us this self-description. He is, and let's see what we can make of that. And this leads us to one of the things very often stressed in the thought of Thomas Aquinas, that is the real distinction between essence and existence in creatures. And what I propose that we do here now is to turn to what to me is one of the most lucid 
passages in Thomas where he moves towards this description of God as subsistent existence through not only an analysis of material existence, but also angels, and shows how God differs from both men and angels, and the difference can be summarized by appeal to this name that God gives himself in Exodus, he who is, has uh, told you these things. So what I want to do now is to look at Thomas's commentary on a little work of Boethius, another one that was in that volume 50. That was just accidental that I happened to bring that one along. But I referred to his commentary in the De Trinitate. Now I want to turn to his commentary on a work that was called the De Hebdomadibus. The De Hebdomadibus, so-called, is also known by a title which sums up the question that is addressed in this little tractate of Boethius. And the question is whether everything that is is good just insofar as it is. Extremely interesting question, however puzzling it might seem at the outset. Thomas's commentary on this little work of Boethius is complete, as his commentary on the De Trinitate is not although it's quite extensive. He didn't complete commenting on the whole of that work on the Trinity, but this one, it's a complete one. And it's a beautiful little treatise that Boethius wrote. There is a phrase that is used of Boethius, the last of the Romans and the first of the Scholastics. If you had to look to anything of Boethius that would justify that second characterization of him, it would be, I think, this little work. Why? How does he proceed in dealing with this particular question. Well, he said, I'm going to proceed, in effect, more geometrico. First of all, I'm going to lay out the axioms, the self-evident truths, that are going to be useful and important for me in addressing this particular question. And when he turns to the question, he's going to create a dilemma and say, it looks as if you have to answer the question this way, but that runs into difficulties. But if you answer it the other way, that runs into difficulties. So he's got a nice problem built up in this way. And then by invoking the axiom, he is able to resolve the issue and respond to those difficulties. So you get the axioms, you get difficulties, you get the response, and then you get the response to those difficulties. It will remind you of an article in the Summa Theologiae of Thomas Aquinas. Anyway, it's structurally a magnificent little work. But what I'm interested in here is not just lauding Boethia, but to draw attention to Thomas's commentary on this, and particularly Lesson 2 of his commentary on the De Hebdomadibus. And what he is doing in this particular lesson at the outset, certainly, I think throughout the lesson. But anyway, he begins with the first axiom that Boethius lays down. Now, an axiom is a self-evident proposition. Axiom is the Greek superlative from good. They're the best proposition, meaning they stand on their own feet. They don't require proof. They are self-evident, or as Thomas would call them, per se note. They're known through themselves and not per alias, through knowledge of other things. In examples that Boethius gives here, the whole is greater than its part. If you know what whole means and you know what part means, you don't need any proof of that. Think, I know that. And if you say two things equal to a third thing or equal to one another, of course you know that. Huh? 
there's no need of proof for that sort of thing. It's the kind of thing to which we appeal when other things are in dispute as to things that can't be in dispute. That's the meaning of an axiom or of self-evident proposition, what Thomas called per se note propositions. Okay. Now, what is the very first? What is the very first axiom that Boethius gives here in the De Hebdomadibus? Diversum est esse et id quod est. What a thing is and that it is are diverse or differ. This is an axiom. This is put forward as a self-evident proposition. I'll be coming back to that. But when Thomas begins the analysis of this, he says the infinitive to be, essay, is something that is made finite in any given proposition. We say S is P. In Latin, it would be subjectum est predicatum, not subjectum esse predicatum. So the infinitive is esse, and the finite form of the verb, S, does what, Thomas says? He says, think of it this way. The range, or the boundlessness, infinitive, of esse is limited both by the subject term and by the predicate term. And we can think of the predicate term as attributing incidental existence to the subject term. Socrates is white, Socrates is standing, Socrates is hungry, Socrates is married, and so forth. These are attributes of Socrates which are incidental to him, some more important than others, but they're incidental to him in the sense that he can be Socrates without them. When Socrates, on the side of the subject, is said to exist, then we're talking about esse substantiale, Thomas would say, substantial existence and not incidental existence or esse occidentale. So in the proposition, esse, the infinitive, is restricted to substantive existence or incidental existence. Now, for Thomas, it is clear, as it was for Boethius, he calls it a self-evident proposition, Thomas accepts that. It's self-evidently clear that no material thing can be such that existence is of its very nature, that it's of its nature to exist. Why? Because if that were true, it could not not exist. It would necessarily exist. And if there's anything we know about the things about us, is that they come into being and they pass out of being. So this is not a problem with respect to the things that are most knowable to us. So the real distinction between essence and existence, the fact that existence is not an essential characterization of any material thing, is beyond argument. Why? Because to deny it would land one into the counterintuitive position of saying that a changeable thing necessarily exists. And by very dint of its being changeable, you're saying it could be, and now it is, and it could not be, and now it isn't. So it's not a necessary existence. So existence is, so to speak, an add-on. It's not something you just read out of the nature of the thing and say, well, a human being, being what he is, could not not exist. We don't know any human beings like that. We don't know any material things like that. This is why the distinction between essence and existence is not a big deal when it comes to material substances. And it only is going to emerge in this particular passage when Thomas now is saying, well, it looks now as if when we talk about 
a substance existing, a material sense, we mean it participates in existence. And this is a language that we're familiar with it from Plato. Thomas uses it a lot. The particular being participates in existence, meaning it's not identical with existence. It shares in it up to a point. It is not being in all its amplitude, but being of this kind or that kind or the other kind. Okay. So the notion of a participation in being, that is in the infinitive, we might say, to go back to that grammatical example Thomas used at the outset, we can say any being participates in existence, and it's not identical with it. Now, that just proceeds fairly easily, both in Boethius and in Thomas in reflecting on this text of Boethius. But then Thomas raises this question. He does this in the De Ante et Essentia, too, on being in essence. Before he talks about God, he wants to talk about the angels. That is, he wants to look into beings which are more than different from sensible or material substances, but are still infinitely less than God. And what better example for a believer in it, their angels can be spoken of, separated substances, on a basis other than revelation. But let's just use the language of revelation and say, what about angels? Are we going to say that they are participations in existence? Now, why is that a problem? Because for a material thing to exist is for the form actually to inhere in the matter. That's what essay substantiale is for a material thing. So that if you don't have a form that is actuating a matter, what is essay going to mean? Or how are you going to talk about a participation in essay up to a point or as this kind of thing, the nature that is constituted by form and matter? Are angels identical with existence? Well, Thomas deals with this rather swiftly. He said, wait a minute. An angel, there's Gabriel, there's Raphael. Just take two. That's enough to have a plurality. They are different from one another. So how do they differ? They differ in the nature that they have, in the essence that they have, in the form that they have. So they're subsistent forms. And their distinction from one another is in terms of the form of Gabrielitas and the form of Raphaelitas. I'm, I'm trying to get an abstraction here. That's how they differ. So they are beings of a kind. This is the point. They share in being. They are not identical with it. They share or participate in existence. They're not identical with it. So in the case of the angels, as in a way similar to yet different from material substances, what they are is distinct from existence. They are beings of a kind, not being as such. So we speak of them similarly, though differently, as participating in or sharing in existence in the way that material substances do. It's at this point that Thomas is going to regain that mosaic, God's description of himself to Moses as he who is. And then he's going to say this, that there is a way of talking about God, which enables us to see that he's different not only from material substances, but also from angels. And we have to say of him that he doesn't participate in existence, but he is existent. He's subsistent existent. He is ipsum esse subsistent. Now, this is the proof that is required when it comes to essence and existence. 
the real difficulty or achievement of Tama is not to prove that there's a real distinction between essence and existence in Grisha. If he's right, if Boethius is right, this is self-evident. That means it's not a need of proof. So it's no big deal, as I said earlier, about material substances, because the denial of the distinction would land you into the incoherent claim that something which is contingent is necessary. With respect to angels, it's a little more complicated to indicate why it is that they are not identical with their existence, but the basic reason is there are several of them, and they share in existence. This one is Gabriel, this one is Raphael, Raphael is in Gabriel, Gabriel is in Raphael, and so on. Whereas in the case of God alone, existence is not parceled out, it's not shared. God is not, in this sense, a kind of being. He is the totality of being. He is the fullness of existence. That's what Thomas takes ipsum esse subsistens to mean. And he speaks of it as heic sublimis veritas, the sublime truth about God. So that's what has to be established. Not that essence and existence are distinct in creatures, but that they are identical in God. In God, there is no distinction between essence and existence. He alone is such that it is of his essence to exist. So that this is the payoff on the quasi-proper name of God. But you can see that the very way in which Thomas proceeds in this second lesson of his commentary on the Dehebne body booth is familiar to us from what we've been saying. Only by dint of comparison and denials and imminent statement can one arrive at an understanding of what is meant by saying that God is ipsum esse subsistent, subsistent existent. This is the least improper name of God because it doesn't suggest as wise or just might do a kind of up to, a, he is up to a point, he's just, but what about this? When you say God is, when God says of himself, I am who am, when we say God is subsistent existence, we mean there's, this is unrestricted existence. It is not limited to a kind. It is the fullness of being. So that God's causality then will be spoken of in terms of this participation. Causality and participation start to look like complementary approaches when we're talking about the divine causality. So that's sublime truth, as Thomas calls it. That is the ultimate in what Thomas has to say about the quasi-proper name of God that we are given in the book of Exodus. Now, to start to bring together the various themes that I've been presenting to you in these six short lectures, I want to turn now to the question of the natural and the supernatural. I obviously, in these talks, I have been concentrating on emphasizing the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas. This is introductory course that is meant to be part of our sequence leading towards the masters in philosophy. If one were to develop such an introductory course on Thomas in our theology sequence, many other things would be emphasized that I haven't even touched on here, but all of the things that I've spoken of would be presupposed in that other and more theological presentation of the thought of Thomas Aquinas. This very little apologia reminds us of the distinction that we spoke of earlier between philosophy and theology. And a thing that we're often reminded of, and it's worth being reminded of, is that Thomas was primarily a theologian. 
He was primarily a theologian. But as I tried to suggest by my analysis of Article 1 of Question 1 of the first part of the Summa, you can't be a theologian unless you're first a philosopher. So it's not as if there are two doors and you choose to go through one or the other, but as in the medieval university, you can get into the faculty of theology only by going through the faculty of arts, which of course became the faculty of philosophy once the influence of Aristotle was sufficiently felt. So we see in Thomas a relationship not of opposition or a kind of alternative between philosophy and theology, but there is a relationship between them which is not just compatibility, but there is a relation of dependence of theology on philosophy. Now, I want to return to a issue that arose when we were talking about the moral order, Thomas's moral thought, that is of the ultimate end. We can be struck in reading Thomas when he's commenting on the Nicomachean ethics of Aristotle, how at home he seems to be in this context. And yet we might say, he's a Christian, he's a Dominican, he's a priest, he's a theologian. Shouldn't he feel some sense of inadequacy in this philosophical approach? And of course the answer is yes, he doesn't have to express it there. But what we don't find in Thomas is any tendency to say, well that's just that's just pagan talk, or that's just philosophical talk. Because of his understanding of the relationship between philosophy and theology, there's always going to be the subsuming of philosophy into the theological enterprise, and of course pushing the reflection beyond anything that philosophy alone could do. But there is, as again the point of referring to the opening article of the Summa was meant to do, there is a dependence of theological reflection on philosophical reflection. Now what I want to do is in terms of this notion of ultimate end, as I say, I want to illustrate that in terms not of the absence of any demure in the commentary on the Nicomachean ethic, but turning to the moral part of the Summa, the first part of the second part, and the first, we look at the opening five questions there, this is what I have in mind, You'll find Thomas talking about the good and the ultimate end and so forth. And if you look at the references and those on whom he's invoking as he argues, you'll find Aristotle showing up all over the place. I mean, Augustine is there and others of the fathers there, but Aristotle's right in there with him. And it's as if he's at home in theology the way Thomas was at home in commenting on the Nicomachean ethic. What's going on here? Because the reason for the surprise should be this, look, Thomas, you know as a Christian what the point of human life is. You know we are called to an end that is far beyond anything that our nature would be owed. We have a supernatural end. We're called to the beatific vision, to union with God after this life. That's not owed to us. That's gratuitous, totally gratuitous. And it's why Augustine called original sin the happy fault, the felix culpa, because what is given in recompense for the fallen nature goes far beyond anything that was lost by original sin. So the gain is, so to speak, far more than the loss in the supernatural order. So when we think of that, as indeed we're likely to, we might wonder, how can Thomas, holding this notion of what human life is all about and the supernatural in, how can he be so comfortable huh, with the Aristotelian statement as to what the ultimate end is? 
In order to understand this, we can remind ourselves of the twofold sense of ultimate end that Thomas puts before us. On the one hand, he can say everybody pursues the same ultimate end in the sense that the notion of ultimate end has to be operative in any action that anyone performs. Whatever we do, we do on the assumption that it is conducive to our overall good or happiness. It's the only way we could desire it. So our overall good or happiness is the ultimate end that explains any particular choice that we make. That's the notion of ultimate end. But then there is, what is it that realizes that notion truly? And here there is all kinds of differences, obviously, between one man and another, and some of the differences are unacceptable. There are many different emphases, of course, in human life, which are equally moral and justifiable, but there are some that are just ruled out as being not conducive at all to the fulfillment or perfection of human beings. So that the notion of ultimate end has to be realized in a concrete way. Not every concrete way of realizing it or seeking its realization truly matches what we mean by the overall perfection or fulfillment of the human agent. Now here is the problem in terms of that, being reminded of that distinction. Thomas and Aristotle would hold exactly the same meaning of ultimate end. They would have the same notion of ultimate end, that which is completely fulfilling and perfecting of the human agent. There's no difference between them on that. But when we look at Aristotle, we have one kind of account as to what realizes that notion, and we want to say that cannot be the answer for Thomas because he's a Christian, and he knows we're called to something far beyond anything that entered into Aristotle's account of what human happiness is. Now, if it were the case that Aristotle is saying what I am putting forward here fully and entirely satisfies the notion of ultimate end, then Thomas, who holds that it does not, that we are called to a supernatural end, Thomas would have to say, you're wrong. And that's false to say that. Why is it false? Because of what he believes. Huh? And he's saying, this is what we're called to. If this is what our destiny is, to say it's only this would be false. But what Thomas noticed and what he emphasizes is that Aristotle never says that. As a matter of fact, he suggests just the opposite, that any way, any life we could lead in this life in this world that will satisfy the ultimate end, our complete good, our perfect good, will satisfy it only partially. That is, we can only have an imperfect realization of the ultimate end in this life. And Thomas cites a certain text of Aristotle in the first book of the Nicopian Ethics. say, Aristotle knew that. Look what he says here. There's a lot of other ways out of Aristotle, I think, in which one can show that he is not under any illusions about the adequacy of what he puts forward as the material, we might say, ultimate end. And that enables Thomas, in the moral part of the summa of theology, to say the relationship between what Aristotle, what philosophers might have to say about human existence and its end, relates to what we know as a result of the faith as the imperfect 
to the perfect. So there's not a contradictory opposition, but the one is, so to speak, a component of the ultimate and perfect summation of happiness. This way in which Thomas shows the compatibility of Aristotle's account of what realizes the ultimate end and what the Christian believed between a imperfect and perfect fulfillment of the notion of ultimate end is not only interesting in itself, showing us how Thomas can lift the natural into the supernatural. There is an old adage that grace elevates nature and does not destroy it. The supernatural order is not the negation of the natural order, but it subsumes it into a wider whole in such a way that it, it reaches a fulfillment it could not possibly have attained independently of it. And this is why Thomists are always just a little reluctant to be mere philosophers, because theology is the queen of the sciences, and in the ultimate order of learning, of course, the whole of philosophy is going to be seen as subservient to theology, the handmaid of theology, ancilla theologiae, as it was called. That's sometimes thought to be demeaning. It doesn't call into question at all the autonomy of philosophy, that is, that philosophical arguments have to stand on their own feet and cannot appeal to anything that is not in the public domain, but it indicates that we human beings who engage in philosophy have a destiny far beyond what can be achieved in philosophy. And to forget that, to try to elevate philosophy into the last word without remainder, is to distort philosophy and is indeed to get a very bad picture of what a human being is. One might go on about that because we live in a time when the secularization of philosophy along with almost everything else seems to be almost complete so that people unfortunately and falsely think that religious faith is an impediment to philosophy or to human reason, that it's incompatible with the use of human reason. I've often thought that the best thing that ever happened to the human mind is divine faith. I mean, if you look at the history of the West, if you look at the development in the arts and in literature and music and architecture and so forth, and see the tremendous impact that religious belief has had on, so to say, the natural order, sublimating it and bringing it up to a level it could not possibly otherwise have reached, one is not likely to think religious faith is somehow an impediment to cultural efflorescence. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. Now, one of the ways in which Thomas has had an impact far beyond, let's say, Catholic circles or even circles that are made up of people who would read the Summa Theologiae and so forth, is through Dante, through Dante, through the Divine Comedy. Dante lived a few decades after Thomas Aquinas. The great Divine Comedy, as you know, is set in the year 1300 and in Easter week and Holy Week. And in that particular poem, this magnificent poem, the Divine Comedy, the Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso, we have what is often said, perhaps too often, uh, we have the summa in verse. Huh? We have the summa in verse. Now that, obviously, as soon as one hears a remark like that, you begin to think of reasons why you wouldn't want to accept it. It seems odd to talk about the cantos of the purgatorio on the same level, as if they were doing the same thing as articles in the summa. But there is a deep sense, there is a deep sense in which the worldview that Thomas articulated so beautifully in the Summa Theologiae is the worldview that sustains this great poem of Dante. 
Dante, in his dedicatory letter to a patron of his, Con Grande della Scala, dedication of the Paradiso, applies to his own poem the kind of device that we apply to sacred scripture, asking what is the literal meaning, what is the symbolic meaning of the text. And what Dante says of the Divine Comedy is this, the literal meaning of the poem is this, the condition of souls after death. The allegorical meaning is the way in which human beings, by their use of their freedom, rightly, justly merit either reward or punishment. Now that is the Christian view of what life is all about, what life in this world is, what the point of it is. Of course, in Dante, people, they're looking back from the other side of the grave. They're losers in the Inferno. They're not quite losers. They're eventual winners in the Purgatorio, and they are united with God in the Paradiso, but in various levels. Now, in the circle of the sun in the Paradiso, Dante introduces Thomas Aquinas, also St. Bonaventure. Thomas gets a lot of space in the Paradiso, so that it's not wholly, in fact, it's not at all a stretch to say that Thomas Aquinas has an enormous impact on the divine comedy. This influence, I think, is something that has enabled the worldview of the Summa to affect lots of people in this aesthetic and poetic way, who, as I say, perhaps would not have read the Summa as such. Let's hope that eventually they will. Dante certainly did. Dante certainly did. And one of the features of Dante's life as a poet is that he tells us that in order to write about Beatrice as no woman has ever been written of before, he had to put his mind to study. And the study was philosophy and theology at the Franciscan and Dominican convents in Florence. Perhaps he studied in Paris. There's a story that maybe Dante did. But whether or not he did, what was going on in Paris and what Thomas had achieved, this is before Thomas was canonized in Bonaventure too, that Dante has got them in heaven, huh? and they're up there with the saints. So he's canonized them before the church did. And you might say he wasn't a household name as yet, except in certain circles, but he looms enormously large in Dante. One of the things that my dear colleague Otto Byrd told me about his time at the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies in Toronto was that Etienne Jusson, who was the founder, first director of that institute, gave as the aim and purpose of medieval studies at Toronto to train people who would be able to read Dante intelligently. The more I reflected on that, it seems to me there is no better way in which one could sum up what is required to read Dante intelligently than all of the things that are done in such places as the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies at Toronto. Having made this point about Thomas's impact on one of the cultural giants of the West, we could talk about other influences that he's had direct and indirect on the other arts. I want now to return to the biographical and to the last years of Thomas. We know that in 1272, he had completed his second regent professorship at the University of Paris, and he returned to what would have been his home base. This is where he joined Naples. And there, Reginald of Paperno, the secretary that I mentioned, is with him. And Reginald tells us that Thomas, as the result of a mystical experience, stopped writing. He stopped writing. 
the Summa Theologiae, as I mentioned, is incomplete. It isn't the case that he just died too soon. He decided not to complete it. And as a result of this mystical experience that he had, he said, after what I have seen, everything I have written seems to me mere straw. Now this, I think, is something that every student of Thomas ought to reflect on. Joseph Pieper, a great 20th century Thomas, wrote a little book, wrote a lot of little books, wonderful little book, but a little book called The Silence of St. Thomas, in which he dwells on this decision on Thomas's part to stop writing, to stop dictating, to devote himself solely to prayer and the other functions of a religious friar. This is puzzling, because if there is any achievement of the human mind in theology, in the opinion of many, and not just myself, the Summa Theologiae, even unfinished, it stands out from just everything else. And there are a lot of reasons for that. And one of them was pointed out by Leo XIII in Eterni Patris, the encyclical that initiated the Thomistic revival in the 19th century, and it went on into the 20th century. Thomas, he said, is a summation of everything that went before. So Thomas is not trying to come up with some totally unheard of interpretation of this or that. He saw himself in continuity with the great effort over the centuries of Christian believers to reflect on the faith and so on. So he's building on that. He's summarizing that. He's putting it forward in a more orderly way. We don't ever find in Thomas any suggestion that he's doing something or saying something that's original. Now, he does say a lot of original things, but this certainly wasn't his intention or ambition better, and he certainly never makes that claim anywhere, to my knowledge, as Aristotle sometimes does. Aristotle sometimes stops to congratulate himself on having done something that no one else had ever done in one of the logical works, for example. He congratulates himself in that way. Thomas never does that. But nonetheless, despite his modesty, or maybe this underscores the point, insofar as his thought is indeed the bringing together, the synthesizing of truths that were scattered, so to speak, through the various fathers, through the philosophers, and so forth, and unifying them in a way that is absolutely magnificent, this is the achievement of which Thomas is saying it's mere straw. Now, the only way we can understand that is, I think, to be reminded of what I was underscoring when we were talking about the divine name. The desire to know God, to know what we can of God, to understand what words applied to him mean, is the be-all and the end-all, not only of philosophy, but of human life. That's what we're made for. We're made for knowledge of the truth, and knowledge of the source of all truth is going to be the only satisfying objective of that quest for truth and knowledge. And yet, in the pursuit of it, in this life, there is always the sense of falling short from it. The inadequate way in which our names, even those that God lends us, so to speak, such as ipsum esse subsistem, they don't lock in to what God is. They don't really enable us to comprehend or see what God is. So there's always this sense, even without the mystical experience that caused Thomas to stop writing, there is always this sense of inadequacy, of pushing, so to speak, beyond the reach of the human mind. 
And yet not to do that would be defeating of what it is to be a human being. This is what's so paradoxical about it. What our chief concern ought to be is what we can do less well or least well, we might say. And yet to do it, even in the way that we can do it, is infinitely preferable to any other kind of activity. But here is Thomas now acknowledging that in the most dramatic way by falling silent, by no longer writing. Now, biographers might say, well, wait a minute, he was on his way to the Council of Lyon after this experience and then fell ill and then died in Fasanova, so he must have been ready to go up there and talk theology in the way in which one would at a council. When he was dying at Fasanova, the Cistercian Abbey, we are told that the monks begged him to comment on the Canticle of Canticles, the Song of Song, and that he agreed. So it sounds as if, well, whatever. I think Pieper is right to underscore the silence of St. Thomas. That finally, there is this dramatic recognition that even in the most exalted achievement in theology, as one could take the Summa to be, we are falling far short of the capacity to comprehend what God is. So silence is a sign of that recognition. And so I suppose it's only fitting that now in imitation of St. Thomas having spoken so much that I now fall silent and acknowledge that in the end, we must recognize the infinite distance between ourselves and the vision that alone can make us happy. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.